0: Good morning, church family. My favorite fiction book is a book called Speaker for the Dead by Orson Scott Card. Can you raise your hand if you've ever even heard of this book? Okay, a few of us. Cool. It is the sequel to Ender's Game. Ender's Game is a more famous book. Um, And it's actually interesting because Card wanted to write Speaker for the Dead Uh, initially, and then he, as he was writing his prologue, the the story kept getting longer and longer and longer. He was like, I was going through 80, 90 pages of manuscript before I was getting to where I wanted to start with, Speaker for the Dead. And so instead, he just wrote Ender's Game. He wrote an entirely separate book so that he could write the book that he actually wanted to write. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole plot with you, but I'll explain the title. Um, In this sci-fi universe, a Speaker for the Dead is something approximating a secular priest. They perform funerals. Before they perform funerals, though, they spend weeks getting to know the family of the deceased and hearing their life story. Then at the funeral, the speaker for the dead tells the whole life story of the deceased, warts and all. They make no apologies for the evil the deceased did, and they make no attempt to hide it either. They make no celebration of the good, but they present everything And in so doing, they bring honor to the deceased. There's an underlying truth there that covering over the sins of the deceased does not honor them, nor does it honor the people that they sinned against. So today, I am a speaker for the dead. Today, we'll cover both Genesis 35 and 36. So pray for my brevity. These chapters mark the end of the narrator's concern with Jacob's generation. After these chapters, the narrative is carried forward by Jacob's sons. Now, Jacob will still appear in the narrative going forward, but he's no longer the focus of the story. So today, we'll look upon how the narrator decides to end both Jacob and Esau's stories, as it were. And I will get the opportunity to speak their deaths, to present their lives and stories fully. So as we reflect on the lives of these two men, I think the main thing I want us to walk away with is this idea, that pain and sin are inevitably a part of God's plan. The legacy of Jacob and Esau is meant to teach us that pain and sin are a part of God's plan. These chapters wrap up a lot of loose ends in the narrative of Jacob thus far, and it gives us a thematic sort of ending to Jacob's transformative exile. So let's now turn to the text and see what God's word has for us. Let's read chapter 35, verses one through eight. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings were in their ear and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob and Jacob came to Luz that is Bethel which is in the land of Canaan he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bacuth. The chapter begins with a bit of a travelogue. All of chapter 35 is essentially the story of how Jacob is returning home after his long 20 year exile. He's already reconciled with Esau and now he's coming home to the promised land. So this chapter is all about that journey. God speaks to him and tells him to go to Bethel. If you don't remember Bethel, it's all right. We uh, covered it back in Genesis 28. So that was, uh, John preached that on October 9th. So it's been a minute since we were at Bethel. It was where Jacob fled to after leaving Isaac, Rebekah and Esau behind. He went to a hill outside of a city named Luz and rested there. And when he was resting, he fell asleep and God came to him in a dream and God reiterated the promise of the patriarchs to Jacob. He told him that he would give him the promised land and make his descendants a great nation. And through Jacob, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God says to him in this dream, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Wow. So Jacob had this crazy dream, woke up and said, wow, God's presence is here. I'm going to name this place Bethel, which means house of God in Hebrew. This, this place is where God dwells. Then after he set up a pillar there, he makes a vow and says, If God keeps his word, if he stays with me wherever I go, then this Lord will be my God. He lays claim to him. He says, This is who I'm going to serve, if God is a God of his word. Then Jacob left from Bethel to Paddan Aram, the land of Laban. And in his exile, Jacob served and was abused by Laban. He fearfully reconciled with Esau, he wrestled with the living God, and he raised a family full of passionate and dramatic sinners. Now God calls upon Jacob to return from exile, re-enter the promised land, and go back to Bethel, just as God said he would back in 28. And Jacob realizes this. If you look at verse 3, Jacob says that God answers him in the day of his distress and has been with Jacob wherever he's gone. Jacob says, God kept his vow to me. It's time for me to keep mine to him. He's going to lay claim to God as his God. He's going to elevate him to the proper place in his life. And how does he do this? Verses two through four, Jacob calls his whole family together and says, all of your idols, your foreign gods, we're ridding ourselves of them. We are going to be Yahweh's people and no one else's. See, it seems like some of Jacob's family was still polytheistic. You remember back when they were escaping from Laban, Rachel stole some of her father's idols. So now Jacob is rectifying the situation. He's tossing out all in his life that might take God's place. Verse 4, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Jacob buries the idols. Notice that he buries them. He doesn't grind them to dust or burn them like we see elsewhere in the scriptures. He buries them. And he buries the idols at a terebinth tree. A terebinth tree is a huge desert tree. It stands alone. It doesn't stand in a forest. It looks a little bit like a willow tree, but it's less droopy. Um, And we can picture Jacob digging in the dirt around this lone tree in the desert, burying the foreign gods that were carved from wood. He puts these wooden gods back where they came from. Genesis is funny about foreign gods and idols. Like what kind of gods can be... Stolen from their owners, hidden from their owners, and then buried under a tree, right? I think that there is some profound symbolism, typology, and imagery going on here. I think that Jacob, in this act of repentance and his return to Bethel, completes the narrative arc that all of humankind is going through in the story of Scripture. So think of it Adam and Eve in the garden take the fruit from the tree, and in so doing, say, I'm going to choose right and wrong for myself. I'm going to take God's place in my life. I see the fruit and I take it for myself, right? Then they are cast out of the garden and into a land to be abused, to have strife, and for brother to raise a fist against his brother. Jacob sees the blessing of his father and he takes it to be cast out into a land to be abused, To have strife and for brother to rise against brother. Jacob, in his exile, retreads much of the first few chapters of Genesis. His stories play out a little bit differently, but the imagery is there. Esau rose against Jacob like Cain did against Abel. Of course, Jacob survives that encounter. Um, And then we also have Jacob's daughter who was taken and abused, just like the Nephilim took and abused the daughters of men. Bethel and Eden were both places where God's presence dwelled with his people personally and powerfully. They were both even hills in the narrative of Genesis. They, they, they go up to Eden and up to Bethel. The people were there left and went out to a land where they did evil and where evil was done against them, where women were violated by monsters and a brother raised a fist against his brother. And at Eden, a, cho- a choice to take from a tree cast them out. And that Bethel, a choice to give to a tree, brought them back. Yet they're both places that hold a promise for the future. A future place that God will dwell with his people. We're to be redeemed, reconciled, brought back into the presence of God, brought into a new Eden. Symbolically, that's what Jacob is doing here. He goes to this tree in Shechem, symbolically standing in for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he repents. He says, when I took Isaac's blessing... When I took the fruit from the tree, I made myself God in my own life. I defined good and evil for myself. I will do so no longer. I repent. I return my gods to the tree, and I walk now into Bethel, the presence of God. Wow. We'll see more Eden imagery in the following sections that confirm this parallel as well. See, God's plan has incorporated pain and sin as a part of it. This journey has transformed Jacob and to a repentant believer and the God who stays with him, Our lives are intended to be that same journey. We will suffer pain. We will sin against one another and do things we never thought we could. Yet this life is intended to give us an opportunity to know and glorify God, to understand his faithfulness, how for believers he is constantly beside us, not forsaking us in the day of our distress, how good he is, particularly in comparison to our own wicked hearts. And suffering is a formative part of life and of God's plan for our good and for his glory. So Jacob repents, heads for Bethel. If you recall at the end of chapter 34, he was afraid that what Simeon and Levi had done would bring the wrath of the Canaanites down upon him. But As he travels into Canaan, God terrifies the cities around him. He strikes fear into their heart. God did this for the other patriarchs as well. When both Abraham and Isaac had their respective encounters with Abimelech, God terrified those kings, struck fear into their hearts. He does the same for Jacob now. Once again, answering Jacob in the day of his distress. Jacob returns to Bethel and builds an altar, which was a common religious practice for the patriarchs. Some scholars actually think that this signifies a now greater devotion to God. See, The first time that Jacob was at Bethel, he built a pillar. Now he returns and he builds a whole altar to God, a place of worship. And then he renames the place El Bethel. We don't really know why he did this, because El means God. So he named the place God of the house of God. Um... Maybe this was some way of Jacob claiming God as his God, of saying that God was bigger than just this hill near Luz. He was faithful far beyond the reach of just this one place. Either way, this is actually kind of normal for Jacob. He did the same thing back in chapter 33. He named a hill God, the God of Israel. So maybe he's just not great at naming things. And then we have an odd detail in verse 8. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies. Uh, First, I'll say... A good way of understanding this chapter in particular is by burials and journeys. There are four burials in this chapter and Jacob's family travels in between them. So it's kind of a travelogue with with four different burials. The first burial being that of the idols. And then they travel to Bethel and then they bury Deborah. She's the second burial. The significance of Deborah's death doesn't immediately jump out at us, but if we read a little bit more carefully, we'll see. You see, Genesis is at pains to always mention the death of the patriarchs and the death of their favorite wife, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob and Rachel. And we'll read about Isaac's death in a minute, but we never hear of Rebekah's death. Instead, we hear of the death of her nurse. We can infer from Jacob's naming the tree Alon-Bakuth, which means oak of weeping, that he mourns this woman when she dies. She was very likely a maternal figure to him. He returns to Canaan and immediately has to become the undertaker for a woman who played a mother-like role to him. And since we never hear of Rebecca again, it is safe to assume that she died during Jacob's exile. If we reflect on that for a moment, this has to be extraordinarily painful for Jacob. He returns to find his real mother dead and immediately must bury his pseudo-mother, The punishment for Rebecca's deception was that she was never to see her son alive again. Yet, God works through pain and sin. And he works to a greater ending than we can imagine. And we see this for Jacob in the following section. God upholds and restates his promise to Jacob. Let's read the next section, verses 9 through 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he, had, where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Now essentially here he summarizes the results of Jacob's exile and to some degree, all of his interaction with humans in Genesis thus far. It's actually weird. This is an amalgamation of all the things that he's commanded or promised to people so far in Genesis. He begins, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. That's how he introduced himself to Abraham. He commands him to be fruitful and multiply. (laughs) And that may strike you as odd initially, because Jacob currently has 11 sons. So it's like, how much more fruitful can I be? How much more (laughs) multiplication can there be? Uh, But we have to remember the narrator is using Eden imagery now. And it is the same command that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. Bethel is a new Eden. It is a place of God's presence, just as Eden was. He names him Israel once more, and he re-promises him a dynasty of kings that will be his descendants as as well as many nations. He repromises the land that was promised to the other patriarchs, and he Jacob na- renames the place Bethel once more. The repetition of this section is a point of particular interest. Nearly everything that is said here has been said in Genesis so far, both from God and from Jacob. And I think it's really to present, really to drive home this point, that God is working and has been working out these exact promises through the pain and sin in the life of Jacob. This is a reconfirmation at the end of the story. At the climax, God pledges once again to be faithful to his people. God is exceptionally gracious in this reminder, actually. I don't know about you, but I'm so quick to forget God. I'm so quick to forget the depth and beauty of his gospel and his glory. He is kind in reminding us of his goodness. He is so kind to us because we have no right to forget something that important about the God of the universe. We have no right to let it slip from our minds, yet he is patient, reminding us time and again. He is slow to anger. And this section really shows the way that God descends to us, that he stoops down to meet us at our level because we are so wholly incapable of rising to his. He's glad to do it. It delights his heart to humble himself, to greet us and to remind us and to teach us. Take joy in that, brothers and sisters. We have a God who is overjoyed to meet us on our terms, to condescend and be among us. We just sang about this: "O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us." He was so pleased to do this that he took on flesh and dwelt with us as Jesus Christ. He was so pleased. To reside with his people, that he didn't consider his glorious heavenly position a thing to be clung to, but instead he took on the form of a servant. He approaches us with a heart that is gentle and lowly. See, this is another thing that we all too often fail to understand. I'm sure most of us in this room understand that God works through our pain and our sin, but we often perceive him as doing so begrudgingly, like Oh, you know, I had a plan and you've done and messed it up and I've got to work around your failures now to do what I actually wanted to do. This is a failure to understand the heart of God. He's delighted to work through our pain and our sin for his glory. If he did not want it that way, it would not be so. God is not worried about you messing up his plan. He's not biting his nails, hoping that you won't make this choice or that No, he has sovereignly and joyfully woven our weakness and sin into his plan. Jumping back to the text, we have another travelogue and another death. So let's read verses 16 through 21. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. And she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is a pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. The tragedy of Jacob's return to Canaan continues. He loses his favorite wife to the birth of his final son. Can you imagine the pain of this journey? Jacob buries a mother figure in his life and has to bury his cherished wife, the one that he loves. He comments on it in Genesis 48, 7. He says, as for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. This is a hard season for Jacob. It begins to make sense why later in Genesis, he claims that his son, Benjamin, the one that was just born, is the only thing that makes his life worth living, essentially. If he loses him, his heart cannot take it. Interestingly, Benjamin is the only son to be named by his father rather than his mother. Rachel tries to name him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow, but Jacob names him Ben-Yamin, which means son of my right, the right being where the favored person sits, so son of my favorite. It's a final testament to Jacob's continuing sin of favoritism towards Rachel, and now to her progeny. Ultimately, I think the theme of God working through the pain and sin in Jacob's life continues here. Benjamin plays an important role in the following chapters and seemingly sustains sustains Jacob's joy in his old age. God gives blessings and hardships, and he works powerfully through both. I also think that Rachel's giving birth right after they leave Bethel is, again, more Eden imagery. Rachel suffers the curse of Eve, both the pain of childbirth and death, revealing that while approaching Bethel was a step in the right direction in God's grand plan, the curse is still upon humankind. But again, God is delighted to work through the pain of our lives and to bring about something greater. Let's read the last section of this chapter, chapter 35, and see how the narrator decides to conclude Jacob's section of the narrative. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Verse 22 gives us a brief but disturbing episode. Reuben sleeps with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, the mother of Dan and Naphtali. This is incestuous and disgusting. And it's not a matter of simple sinful lust either. Similar to stories that we see later in the Bible, like David and Absalom, this is to some degree a power grab by Reuben. He's trying to usurp Jacob's position as head of the family Hear what Jacob says about this episode in Genesis 49, 3 through 4, when he's blessing his sons. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up on my couch. See, Jacob took note of this episode, and it affected his judgment of Reuben on his deathbed. When he's blessing his sons, he tells Reuben that though he is the firstborn, he will not have preeminence. The uh, Simeon and Levi won't either because of their violence in chapter 34. Thus, the preeminent line, the line of the kings, and ultimately the Messiah is passed down to Judah. That's a sermon for next year, so we'll move on for now. We have enough to occupy us in this text. After Reuben's sin, we have a list of Jacob's 12 sons, arranged not chronologically, not by their birth order, but by their mothers. This is Jacob's legacy. And as we draw to a close of his focus, uh, as the narrator draws to a close of his focus on, the, on, this, uh, on this narrative of Jacob's life, this is what he's left behind. A horde of wild, passionate, and sinful men who, will shape, who God will shape and form into a nation of his people. The last story in this chapter is about the death of Isaac. Frankly, I was shocked to discover that Isaac was still alive. He seemed pretty sure he was about to die the last time that we saw him. (laughs) But he survived for the whole of Jacob's exile. So Jacob returns to Hebron, where Isaac and Abraham had sojourned. This was a well-developed area, the capital of a Canaanite kingdom. And he approaches his father's bedside in a beautiful image. God gave him a second chance to honor Isaac on his deathbed. Rather than Jacob and Rebekah scheming to outwit Isaac in his old age, Jacob now has a chance to honor him. So Isaac lived all the days of his life. And then he is buried by his sons, his reconciled sons, They stand side by side with no animosity, no anger. Jacob may still be deceitful. Esau may still be headstrong, but they've both changed and evolved and are unified to honor their father in his death. And this is how Jacob's story closes out. A painful journey for him, certainly. He returned to discover his mother had passed. He buried a mother figure, his beloved wife, and his father. And this is the culmination of all Jacob's story re-receiving the promise of the patriarchs. You get to see how Jacob's relationship with Isaac, Esau, Rebecca, and Rachel all ended within the same chapter. Good endings are difficult to write, but this is a great one. It ties together all of the significant relationships that Jacob had. We'll reflect on Jacob and Esau's lives respectively here in a moment, but I want to talk for a bit about chapter 36. We won't read the whole thing, as much of it is a record of Esau's descendants. Uh, one commentator called it an unusually long genealogy. Uh, but I do want to take a look at the first eight verses. They are kind of a summary of the rest of the chapter in themselves. Let's read them together. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Ohalibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basemith. Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimoth bore Raul, and Ohalibama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all his beasts and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. This section sort of summarizes the remainder of the chapter. Jacob and Esau separate over land, similar to how we saw Lot and Abraham separating over land. Uh, This chapter is the conclusion of the narrator's interest in Esau. He doesn't show up again. But it seems like at the end of 35, him burying Isaac side by side with Jacob reveals a kind of kinship. Esau, in the eyes of the narrator, is viewed kindly as a relative that walked out of the promise, very similar to Ishmael. So the narrator gives him his very own genealogy. If you recall the genealogies, the Toledotes as they're called in Hebrew, are dividing points in the story of Genesis. This Toledote for Esau ma- marks the end of the narrator's interest with the generation of Jacob and Esau. He- it comes to a conclusion with the death of their father and a historical record of the people of Edom, that is Esau's descendants. Moses includes it partially for the Israelites, as Genesis seems particularly interested with how people groups came to exist in the ancient Near East. Uh, But he's also uh, honoring Esau and his contribution in including it. It also reveals to us something of God's heart for the nations. God cares about all peoples, even those who aren't covenanted with him. In fact, he specifically tells us that in his, it is his delight and will to bring together a people from all the peoples of the world. Here, as we look at the rest of this chapter, we see Esau's descendants and the kings and the chiefs of Seir that come from his line. We see a people that God still intends to pursue, regardless of who their father is. He works it through the blessing of Abraham, but he, he reaffirmed it to Jacob back in chapter 28 that Jacob would be a blessing to all the families of the world. God cares about people other than the Israelites. And this is good news for you and me, because we are Gentiles. At least most of us. I don't know if any of you are Jewish, but most of us are Gentiles who have been grafted onto the vine. Praise God for his love for all peoples. May our love for all peoples flourish because of that. I pray that we wouldn't be passive, but rather active in our pursuit of these people. The church is the means by which God goes after these people. So to share the wonder of the glory of God with them. We should take a moment to reflect on the lives of these two men, Jacob and Esau, brought together to bury their father side by side. This is the part where I get to speak their deaths, essentially. Let's remember Esau for a moment. He was the firstborn of Isaac and Rebekah, twin to Jacob. He grew up a hunter, an outdoorsy man of, uh, of the wilderness. He was headstrong, rash, and hairy. He first let his cunning brother swindle him out of his birthright simply because he was very hungry. He then was betrayed by that same brother to a greater degree when he stole his father's blessing. So in his hurt, Esau bucked the family tradition, married a Canaanite, and pursued worldly wealth. In his middle to late age, he reconciles with his brother, showing immense mercy and growth. And he stands next to him when he buries his father. Esau was a wild man. And Genesis is rather ambiguous about him in the end. He's viewed kindly, yes. And he appears to have changed after the exile, but what kind of man is he? As I was studying this passage, I read a quote by R. Kent Hughes that I'd like to share with you. It seems a fitting eulogy for Esau. It says, Personally, I have seen the pattern and ambiguities of Esau's chronicle traced in the lives of men I have buried over the years. They were born to godly, though imperfect parents. Growing up, they were nurtured and catechized in God's word, but Christian things mean little to them. Heaven was far off, disconnected from real life. And as they matured, they, became to, they, they came to despise their heritage, maybe not overtly, but by neglect and dismissiveness. Some were ignorant despisers, others were cultured despisers. To their parents' great sorrow, they married outside the faith and then went with the flow of the culture and raising their children so that they became de facto pagans pursuing and even attaining the American dream. But as these men passed through their midlife, the emptiness of it all began to pummel their souls. They repented and came to faith. When they could, they made amends, but their families did not follow. So these men stayed at the fringes of the church, sometimes seeking counsel, engaging in benevolences, attending irregularly and alone, inarticulate as to their faith. And when they died, the family asked for a funeral in the church in respect to their father's wishes. And when I preached, it was to ignorant, unbelieving hearts, to Edomites. We don't know if Esau was a man of faith or just a person of peace. His mistakes can be learned from, though. He was rash and ignorant in his behavior, both with regard to the blessing and with regard to his marriage. Esau shows us what a hurried, undiscerning life looks like, one without the fear of God. If I can impress anything upon you from Esau's life, it's this. Your relationship with God matters today. If spiritual things seem unimportant or distant to you, pause. Stop your work. Stop what you're doing. Stop your distractions. For long enough to reflect on what life is about, what's actually worthwhile. You'll soon realize that the only thing that matters is the transcendent, holy, perfect God revealed in Jesus Christ. Do not go through life with spiritual tunnel vision. Don't get to the point where your soul has been pummeled by the emptiness of it all. Turn to God and give your life over to him today. Jacob's life, on the other hand, is very different. I have a professor who used to say that uh, if Jacob can be part of the covenant, then I've got a shot. (laughs) If he can be a follower of God, then my odds have improved. He's a man of deceit, of cowardice. Have you noticed how often Jacob is afraid in his story? He flees Esau, he flees Laban, he's terrified to confront Esau again. And even last chapter, he rebuked his sons, not for their unrighteousness, but because what they did was going to bring wrath upon him. He was fearful. Jacob is a coward. But he's a coward who wrestled with God. How like us. We're fearful people. I get anxious when I have an upcoming test or when I'm driving on the highway, much less when my life is threatened like Jacob's was. Jacob's story can to some degree give us assurance that even people like him are chosen. Even people like us are chosen. He's a man of faith and faithlessness like Isaac before him and like Abraham before him. And we're no different. We believe and yet daily we forget God and his sovereignty. We distrust his goodness. We fail to give him the glory he deserves. But for the Christian, for the people of God, when God says, return to Bethel, we obey. When God calls us home, We obey. That's the grand arc of Jacob's life. We talked about it earlier, but Bethel is the new Eden, the place where the people of God dwell with him. Jacob is called to repentance in order to enter it. The grand story of humanity is distilled in the story of Jacob. We also left the presence of God, taking from the tree, trying to make gods of ourselves and look at what we've created, war and disease and poverty. Suffering immeasurable. Yet God is working through our pain and our sin. And he worked through our pain and the sin of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Judah. Through their line, he brought us Christ. And in Christ, the script is reversed. He works through Christ's pain, but still our sin. On the cross, on that tree, Jesus took the pain that we had earned and offers us eternal life on the merit of his righteousness alone. See, it is the case that if we never took the fruit, then there would be no need for a redeemer to save us. But each of us rises in the morning and takes the fruit anew each day. We all sin. We all make ourselves God of our lives. But on the tree which Christ hung from, we can approach, bury our idols, and walk into God's presence anew. Praise God. We can look to Christ daily and repent of the worship we offer to foreign gods and idols in our lives. Whether it's work or money or sex or power. We can bury those gods at the cross of Jesus Christ and be freed from our slavery to them. If we turn to him and repent daily, we may walk anew into the presence of God. If you don't know Jesus Christ or what it means to walk with him, what he did for you and what he now offers you, Please come and talk to me. Please talk to the person you came with or talk to one of our elders, John or Jared. Any of us would love to talk with you about what a life with Christ might look like. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today, a day to approach you in repentance. God, I pray that you would settle it in all our hearts today to turn to you in the hope of redemption that you've offered. God, do not let us be rash or urgent in our decisions as Esau or deceitful and cowardly as Jacob, but let us be strong in our faith and diligent in our walk with you. God, let us be people of faith. And God, when we fail to be people of faith, remind us that you delight to work in the pain and sin of our lives. Remind us that you are sovereign and filled with joy to do the work that you do, not begrudging, not as if we are an encumbrance, but with great pleasure, God, I pray that as we reflect on these men's legacies, that you would put hope in our hearts for the day that we will dwell with you again. We love you, God, and we worship you. In Christ's holy and beautiful name, amen.